Welcome to episode six of Learning the Last Dance, the episode where Ricky and I do our best to make sense of the phenomenon that is the Michael Jordan documentary that debuts in America on ESPN and the rest of the world the night after, the day after, on Netflix. Ricky, we're on episode six, which means The Last Dance is on episode six. Things are starting to get a little bit uh, macabre. Dark's a little bit too too heavy, but we're starting to see a side of Michael Jordan that maybe we didn't know existed before. That's right. It seems like they've kind of been building him up uh, since he comes into the league in 84, and you're just seeing this great rise, this meteoric rise of the uh, most famous basketball player of all time. And then this kind of brings in the other side of it. And, you know, we see this with celebrities. They build you up. They use the term on a pedestal throughout this episode. But you just have this guy who they have put up on this gigantic pedestal, biggest player, probably most famous athlete in the world at this time. And when you get that big, people are going to start looking for reasons to not like you. It's funny because that was the main criticism of this documentary up to this point was that people were saying, this is one big Jordan puff piece. Why do I want to watch it? Now, everyone but Patrick Ewan said he's never watched because why would he want to watch himself lose, which I get. But this episode is anything but a puff piece for Jordan because they really start to dive into and pick away at this guy's flaws and let's just dive right into the idea of michael jordan and the i'm gonna call it the celebrity curse ricky okay because we all sit there and wonder what our lives would be like if we won the lottery or if we were super famous and talented and filthy rich well michael jordan is every one of those things and there's a stark image in this episode of michael jordan in his hotel room just sitting there by himself smoking a cigar being like this is it this is the only place I get peace. And then it tends to go and walk. You get to see Jordan is just mauled everywhere he goes. There's not one place where he can't be away from people. And I will admit, it felt overwhelming to me to, to watch that. The, the, the image that sticks with me is they show him in relaxing in his hotel room. He's like, this is the only place I can go. And they come down the elevator and those elevator doors open and you're hit with this wall of sound of this crowd waiting for him in the hotel lobby, just Michael Jordan. And just did like, just what it must be like on that elevator ride as you're just, the floors are descending closer and closer to the main level. And you know, as soon as that door is hit, you're just going to have these people screaming at you and clamoring for your attention. I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. There was a shot where he was leaving one game and obviously the NBA, you're pretty close to the crowd and there's a fan. It just mauls him and starts rubbing his bare, sweaty head as he's going off the court. And as someone who hates to be hugged or touched, that to me would drive me bananas to feel like people have an entitlement to touch you. I'm sure pregnant women feel the same thing with their bellies when strangers just go, can I, can I rub or touch your belly? As, as they're already doing it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's yeah. what happens, right? And it seems like that guy, that guy looked like he, uh, after he rubbed Jordan's head, he's turned around high five all his buddies and like, I don't know. Is that is that your like favorite story to tell? <laughs> Once I was at an NBA game and I touched Michael Jordan's head, like just. But that's celebrity culture, though, Ricky. Right? That's How true. many times have we seen on social media? Maybe we're guilty of it, where people take photos and they have this brush with fame, and me talking about Michael Jordan somehow gives me validation or makes me feel like it's ridiculous to say out loud, 
But we've all been there. Hey, I oh, saw so sure. and so. I feel amazing because I don't know. People are giving me attention, or people are jealous of what I just lived through. Like this is what Michael Jordan could give to people every single day. Yeah, just imagine. I think my 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 uh, thing I'm most guilty at with that is anytime I can get you know retweeted or tweeted at by a famous person. You just think you're the coolest guy totally, in the world, right? right? Oh my so, goodness, so-and-so gave me attention. Like, what a bizarre concept. But yeah. as humans, we all understand it because we all crave it. The, uh, when we, I'm, I'm jumping ahead here, but the Knicks, uh, Knicks play a role in this episode. And uh, the, one of the mean guys there, Anthony Mason, he got on Twitter for like two months. He, he passed away quite soon after that kind of tragically but he got on twitter and he was chatting with anybody who wanted to talk to him and so there's a bunch of you know the nba type guys in regina who are all you know adding him as a as are following him and he was following back and you can kind of have a few conversations with him and it was it was crazy because again we've we've talked about in previous episodes but these knicks are kind of the the boogeyman to my childhood and uh to be able to talk with that and you just get a little sense of that guy was kind of the fifth best player on a Knicks team. He wasn't anything compared to a Michael Jordan. Right. So you could you can see how people would let themselves get caught up in the hysteria of of Michael Jordan. And so you chatted with this guy. I mean, chatted chatted might be a strong word, but it was you know, <laughs> I enjoyed watching you play in the Knicks. Blah 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 blah. Hey, thanks, man. Thanks for following me all the way from Canada. That kind of thing. I may have seen that and had no idea what you were talking about on Twitter. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a story about Jordan. This is not in the episode, but it was on Sports Illustrated about someone asked Jordan, how do you get groceries? And this was relatively early on in his career because, of course, what you see in the episode is that this guy can't go anywhere. So how no. does he eat? And he actually had a deal with a local grocery store where he would call them up 15 minutes before they closed and he would walk in when they were closed officially, whether it was a back door or whatever, would walk in, do his grocery shopping. They would stay open later for him and he would cash out and obviously tip everyone around him quite good for staying open late for him. So I thought like, you know, you have to make those concessions and to a smaller scale, Ricky, if you talk to Saskatchewan Rough Riders here in Saskatchewan, population 1.1 million people, they'll tell you the same thing where it can grind on them to even go out to a grocery store and have to stop every two seconds to say hi or get a photo or hear someone's stories that aren't, aren't relevant to them at all. They're just telling you how much they appreciate you. No, they're a little bit of the, uh, what did we have the term for the, uh, the, the team manager roles, team manager guys that come up and think that you want to talk with them as much as they want to talk with you. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's uh, funny that way, but yeah, you could just imagine you know, in either scenario, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders or, or Jordan, like big, big athletic guys, and they'll just stick out whether you really know who they are at all. But for Jordan, just the most recognizable face, especially in basketball compared to football, where you're not wearing any equipment, you're just out there, everyone seeing you. So I couldn't imagine some of, you know, getting groceries, even getting gas for one of his numerous, numerous vehicles. I don't think we've seen the same one again <laughs> through these six episodes i think we made fun of that in episode two but uh and you know going out to the nightclubs or anything like that and we kind of get into that again later with uh his infamous trip down to uh, atlantic city but we'll get yeah, there we'll get no there idea. okay so have you ever been 
envious of someone like Michael Jordan. You see the money, the fame, the power, and go, oh, man, must be nice. I wish I had that. Because I feel like we're all guilty of that. We all wish we, we wish we were Madonna or Michael Jordan or, you know, pick your celebrity, fill in the blank, that we look at and say they have no problems. And then we get to see this thing with Michael Jordan and go, wait a minute, I'm living their dream in some ways where I can sit in my basement and record this obscure podcast with a friend <laughs> and not be bothered by anyone else. Yeah, it's, it's got to be such a trade-off to think about, you know, what's, what would be the right le- level of celebrity for you? I mean, you're a recognizable face in, in Regina. You've had a couple, you know, internet shows and you're on the sports talk there and everyone you your face must be on buses and billboards and whatnot um in theory yeah in theory (laughs) and i mean some of this stuff i remember even just being in high school you know being the you know the athlete the big guy i had blonde spiky hair like i was so noticeable and jordan goes into this episode about you know if i had to do it all again i wouldn't want to be a role model and and I had some of those conversations with teachers and coaches about needing to be a, they wanted me to be a leader. They wanted you to be this role model. And you were just like, I just want to be a high school kid. Like, I don't want to have to be worrying about how my actions are going to be influencing other people in the school. Uh, and then to just take that to the, you know, the nth degree with Jordan here, where he's talking about being in this, this pedestal again, that they put him on and the whole world's looking at him. And they have he's supposed to be this clean cut, nothing does nothing wrong uh, human being, which just doesn't exist out there. And you don't get to choose at the end of the day whether you're a role model or not. People look up to you because of your greatness. The question I have though, Ricky, do you have any sympathy for someone like Michael Jordan who complains about losing their freedom? So I would say athletes, I, I have much more sympathy for than say like some Instagram influencers and whatnot that are out there where their whole, their whole stick is to be noticed and to be known in the world for nothing other than really being known the Paris Hilton's and Kardashians of the world and whatnot. But where Jordan is, I just happen to be really good at this game. I can make some money on it. And like his, his salary in the eighties wasn't amazing, but game grew and his salary grew and he's making what do we say? 36 million this last year. So that's a mm-hmm. ton of money, but really if he was making the same amount of money, he would have made in his rookie year. He'd still be playing basketball. Just happened. He was really good at it. And it was something that the, uh, the world started to take notice of and put value on. So you're saying it's not his fault that he chose to play basketball and be amazing at it versus someone who actually tries to, to go after that attention and that power. Exactly. Okay, I'll give that to you. I still have no sympathy for Michael Jordan, though. That is the way it works. If you are going to be a superstar, if you are going to live the dream of never having to worry about anything monetarily, getting into any sort of leisure thing that you ever wanted in life, your trade-off is your freedom and your privacy, ultimately. And I think that is a word of caution for the rest of us that try and pursue a lot of that stuff to go, wait a minute, do I actually want to get famous and powerful? Maybe rich. There's a lot of rich people out there that no one's heard of before. I mean, you can do that. But the power side of it, I don't really, I don't desire that. And I, 
I mean, I guess I kind of felt bad for Jordan in the sense that he's a human being. And you could tell that it's just driving him nuts. And they allude to it may have driven him out of the game the first time. We'll get into that, uh, whether it's this episode or the next one. But it, yeah, it was, a, it was a great example of the reporters and the players saying, hey, here's what Jordan has to live through. It's insane. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just hard to imagine you know, putting ourselves in that type of scenario. And you look back, he played basketball late into 89, East Con- Eastern Conference Finals 90, Finals 91, Finals 92, Olympics 92, then Finals 93. Like that is a lot of basketball without a real break at all. Uh, you look at a guy like LeBron who got hurt last year and he finally got this first, he got like eight months off. And he comes back at age 35 just looking amazing again. And now he's going to get this other break with with COVID. And mm-hmm. however long they're going to have off before they start that up again. But you're going to see why uh, some of these guys are going to be able to play longer. On the flip side, it seems like some people, once they get that break, uh, they enjoy it too much and they never really get the drive to continue to be great. Yes, and it, it seems like that's not Jordan's problem because he'll compete with security guards trying to throw <laughs> quarters against the wall. I wonder, this is just a thought, uh, I wonder if Jordan had been around nowadays in the era of smartphones and ultimate communication where you actually never have to be bored. You know, you're never a prisoner inside your own home because the world is at your fingertips. That could have made a big difference than, well, maybe his mental health, but at least his outlets and his entertainment factor versus what do you do back then? You've got a book, you've got a corded phone, and you've got a television. So you're kind of on your own. So we don't want to we don't want to envision Michael Jordan with a uh, a gambling device in his pocket that he can pull yeah, out at any time. I guess a virtual gambling. Oh man, or Earl Thomas has, has shown us all uh, how you get in trouble with smartphones. Oh boy. <laughs> oh boy. Okay, let's dive into gambling though. So gambling is the main thing about Jordan in this episode. And I, I didn't know this, Ricky, maybe you did, but there was a lot of heat around Jordan going into the finals in 1993 for this repeat and then getting lost, not lost, but taking, a, I'm using air quotes, a break with his family to go gambling in Atlantic City. Yeah, game between game one and two of the uh, Eastern Conference finals of 93, they're playing the first place New York Knicks. So the Knicks actually finished better record than the Bulls. And Jordan's, again, stuck in his hotel room. Nothing to do. Needs to blow off some steam. Needs to kind of clear his mind, as he tells it, anyways. So him and his dad hop in a limo, drive the, whatever it is, 90 minutes, two hours down to Atlantic City. Spend a few hours gambling. He says it was 1230. The uh, Or he says he was home at 1230. Other reports have him at the casino still at 230. So, yeah. Who knows? And you know there's tape on that, right? Right. There's somewhere, so there's some security video that would prove that, and it never came out, so you wonder who won that battle. Yeah. <laughs> and so they go into game two the next day, and they lose. So it's, um, you know, Jordan's trying to play it off. Like, what's the big deal? You know, it, me, my dad and I could have gone to a movie where it's just sitting there watching a movie versus sitting in a casino gambling. Uh, it's still, gambling's still kind of one of those gray areas you know, with the uh, the public opinion about it. So, you know, if Jordan would have driven two hours to go to see the stars out in upstate New York and driven back and gotten back at the same time, nobody would have thought twice. But he's gambling, so they think it's terrible. 
But then we learn about the history of Jordan's gambling and why mm -hmm. it uh, is kind of a you kind of one of those where there's smoke, there's fire scenarios. Yeah, when I first saw the story about Atlantic City, I thought this feels a bit overblown. But I get it. I mean, there was an example here just this past year with a rough run. Our running back was at a bar reportedly until two thirty-three in the morning drinking tequila, and they saw him puking. But I was like, well, who cares? Because the next day he can sleep until noon or one p.m. and then get ready for the game. It doesn't like they're on a different schedule than we are, right? Exactly. He doesn't have to be up at five o'clock. But then to your point, they go, no, 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 no. This isn't a one-time thing. This is a culture. This is borderline addiction. It's an obsessive behavior with Jordan and his gambling. That's it, right? So, so the the big thing is that uh, this guy he was playing golf against, this hustler, he uh, he gets in the the hustler gets indicted on like federal charges, and they find this fifty-seven thousand dollar check from Michael Jordan. Like, what do you think the prosecutors, are, you know, the the guys are looking through this guy's files, and they're like, uh, "This check says it's from Michael Jordan." Mm -hmm. <laughs> I wonder what Slim wonder Bowler if, was his name, right? Slim Bowler. Like, how do you trust the guy with that moniker? Like, well, and I didn't understand this either. Who's around Michael? Because Michael admits in the documentary, the the present day Michael. Yeah, these guys were shady characters, and I should have, right. you know, in hindsight, it was a bad idea, but. Who's not around Michael to tell him this, for one thing? Like, whoa, the guy's name is Slim Bowler. Maybe give that a look or two. But also, if I lose a $50,000 gambling bet to someone over a golf game, or even like a one, like if I go nuts and say, okay, 500 bucks win this next hole against you, Ricky, I'm not paying you the 500 bucks, right? Like, it's, I'm not going right. to do that versus this was like almost, it was a binding thing for this guy because Jordan apparently paid him. A check that they found out. So I don't understand it. I don't understand how a guy like Michael Jordan gets mixed in with these guys. But he seemed to be enjoying himself because he went back with this Eskinas guy later on and they were gambling. That's right. So, yeah, that's – I mean, that one really had some red flags. It had red flags on the story, but also red flags on the source. This guy seemed pretty pretty shady. But, yeah, like he, this guy writes his book. It's like Michael and me, how gambling – lost my life or something something like that but he he says that michael jordan owed him over a million dollars a million dollars you know the, the, they have uh my favorite my favorite in my sarcastic tone interview of this whole thing uh david aldridge the uh the sideline reporter who i just i don't like anything he says but he he talks about well you know jordan losing ten thousand dollars is like you losing ten dollars it's fine he can afford to lose ten dollars equivalent but when you start talking about millions of dollars well that's where you know some people say oh he just likes you know playing blowing some steam off at the casino now you're hearing about a guy losing a million dollars on the golf course um and charles barkley is another famous uh basketball gambler who reportedly has lost millions on the golf course i don't know how you'd ever put money behind that swing of his but uh that's right? just kind of kind of who these guys are oh man because he talks about He's interviewed. I, I don't know who he was interviewed by in this. It was a famous American reporter. But she says, do you have a gambling problem? Straight up to him. And he says, no, I have a competition problem. I can stop yeah. gambling, and I do, but I can't get away from competition. And you see that in the worst way where there's an example of the story of them, them being the Bulls, gambling on the team plane. 
And there's literally a high stakes table on this right. plane where people are gambling for thousands of dollars. And then there's the poor guys at the back who are literally gambling for $1 a game. And Jordan comes to the back of the plane to the $1 game, and, and they say it in the documentary, what are you doing here? And he's like, I want your money in my pocket. I want to be the alpha male here. I want to beat you guys, and I want to own you. And I don't know if it's an insecurity or what, or, or an obsession with needing to be over someone, but that to me seems – that's over the top. That's too far for me for, to accept that from Jordan to go, wait a minute. You just want to beat these guys and take their money so that you feel better than them? Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> I, I don't think there's board games that I love playing because I often win. And then there's board games that it just doesn't fit the way I think and whatnot. And I just don't like them because I never win on them. And so if we're playing games, I'm making sure I want to pick a game that I'm familiar with and think I can win. Because if you're going to play a game, you, I'm same thing as Jordan. Like I'm playing to win. If I don't win, I'm upset. In fact, my mom, to to stop some of the uh, competitiveness with me and my siblings, instigated. We call it the Tiefenbach rule, and it's it's winner winner cleans up every time. Wow! So and to I keep you humble. I did so much cleaning, right? But I didn't care. I was like, you win a monopoly, you got to take fifteen minutes to clean that game up. But I was more than happy to do it because I didn't. Have, I got to win, even though I had to do all the cleaning. This feels like a growth moment for me when it comes to Jordan. There's a story that I read about Jordan and Gretzky gambling at, at a casino. And a waitress walks by with a drink or whatever it was. And Jordan tips her in a chip. It's like a $5 chip or whatever. And he's with Wayne Gretzky, who would understand money and fame and power in the same way to a, a lesser extent that Michael Jordan has. And he takes the chip puts it back on Jordan's stack, takes one of Jordan's 100 stacks and puts it on the tray and says, that's how we tip in Vegas. And it just feels like almost like Jordan was given too much power too, too soon. Right. We, we hear all these stories about people that grow up too fast. Right. And the very first episode you hear about Jordan and he even brings this back uh, after they clinch a playoff spot where, where he grew up, they were doing in, in the locker room and drinking beers. Like they're trying to hide this Miller light that they're drinking after they, clinch a playoff spot and he's like guys I grew up in this and it's almost like too much too soon because the way I'm watching him gamble us all the way or not gamble it all the way because he's not gambling it all the way it's too much to gamble away but it just feels it feels like he's out of control right and, and maybe I maybe not the term out of control but it does seem like he's it's so it's compulsive like he can't like when like when he's flipping quarters with the security guys Right, that's he's probably just waiting ten minutes before he has to do an interview, and he's in his little back room, so no one's bothering him. And and they have to be gambling, they have to be doing something. He has to be, has to be, has to be, has to be. So then to tie it back to him going to Atlantic City before this Eastern Conference game, yeah, people are upset. There's there there's again where there's smoke, there's fire. Is he is it is he out of control? Is it more than just compulsive now, where he's sitting in in New York and going, I got to get out. I got to go gamble. I got to gamble. I got to get gamble. And he drives 90 minutes, two hours out of town just to gamble the night before an Eastern Conference final game. Yeah. I, the longer I sit and think about it, I go, mm, something's off there. But 
He's Michael Jordan, right? It doesn't cost him anything. But you brought up them, him throwing cords with security guards, so I want to pause this for fashion because I got one this episode, Ricky. And it was the blonde perm by that one fashion guard with the glasses who literally looked like a character of, out of Napoleon Dynamite. He does. I've heard, I've heard other people referring to him as the Tiger King. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, he's got that classic itchy band haircut and just flowing and just it's poofy and flowing. It's, it's almost like a permed bleached mullet. It's just, it looks like a joke. It looks like I'm here as a joke and I'm not a real character, even the way he dances when he wins. Like the guy just seems to love life. And apparently he's passed away since this documentary has been made. I couldn't believe it that this guy was a real character. So he was my one fashion faux pas. Did you get anything else? There was one Jordan tie. It was quick. It was quick. But I think he's getting out of a car. He's got one of his giant stole your dad suits, suits, yeah, suits on. But the the tie looks like his kid painted it. It's terrible. And then maybe his kid did paint it. And I'm going to look like a drill jerk right now. But No, you know is, he paid $10,000 yeah. for that tie. It looked very nice, like nice material, but yeah, it looked like someone just dumped some paint on it and moved, used some finger paints on his tie. But uh, and then the only other thing I had was uh, we've made mention of him sitting in his hotel room by himself. That furniture is just hideous, and the poor guy again, he's six six, so he's not going to fit on a lot of couches. But he's just he doesn't fit on this couch at all, and it's just that ugly like beige paisley flower print that your mom thought was cool oh it's just yeah for the rest of us we could fit four on this couch and it didn't occur to me until you said this but that's michael jordan on that couch that's why it looks like a love seat because yeah. he's laying on it <laughs> uh the only other thing i had was there was a pair of pants michael jordan had near the end where he's playing golf that looked like they were three sizes too wide like i could fit my whole body in one pant leg and he's walking around the golf course and i just thought somebody find this man a tailor. Like there's, you can make 14 pairs of regular person pants of the amount of fabric on these pants on this golf course, but I you can't get, you can't get 10 pleats in unless you, unless you have some extra material. Man, <laughs> poor Jordan. I, I just wait. I want the last episode for him to look back and let us know you guys. My fashion was terrible. Right. I you mean, talk. I mean, we haven't, we haven't brought up his one interview. He's he, his like present day interview He's basically in like a grayish shirt and like black camo swim trunks. Ricky, I haven't thought about that. So I don't like that's really not that cool. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> unless it, that's unless not, it's, his yeah. scotch scene, his scotch scenes, he's he's looking good. He's fine. But the other one is You're just right. like it's a bit it's a little bit Randy River. You're right. Oh man, that's funny. I'm gonna watch for that next episode. Uh, you mentioned earlier about the nightmares that the the Knicks gave you. Oh yeah. Let's get into the Knicks. This is the this is the Eastern Conference Finals in 1993. 93, yeah. And so this is like Patrick Ewing coming into his own. Uh, you have John Starks who kind of came out of nowhere, undrafted. Uh, he's their their point kind of point guard, uh, shooting guard who's just tough as nails. And then you have. Xavier McDaniel, Charles Oakley, and Anthony Mason. You have like the three toughest dudes in the league all on the same team, right? So it's just like they took the bad boys persona and moved it right over to New York, which, of course, 
Knicks fans loved. They love that tough, tough, uh, tough play, especially when you have uh, someone like Jordan that you can cheer against with your team giving it to him physically. So, right, you're Knicks, the villains. You're the villains. You're, you're the villains, and you're going up. So again, you you got kind of the hero in Jordan. You got you're the bad boys. You finished first in the East this year. You beat. You had a better record than the two-time champs. So this team was good. Like they were looking good. Yeah, I, I looked this up. They they skip right over um you know the earlier round. So I think Jordan and the Bulls finished with 57 wins. The Cleveland Cavaliers finished with 55 wins. Pretty good. Finished third in the East. I think they were had the fifth best record in the league. And Jordan and the Bulls go in there in the second round and sweep them. Just like Brush them right aside, and this is what the fourth year after the uh, shot over Elo to knock off the Cavs before that. And so Cleveland must have thought they had a pretty good team this year. Maybe we could knock off Jordan, and just kind of reminds me of the Toronto Raptors every time they had to play LeBron. Just you know, we've got a good team this year, and then they just go in there and rip their hearts out. Ricky, is this a basketball thing? Because I know that it's in hockey where all you need is your team to get to the playoffs. Once you get to the playoffs, your team can find another gear and everything changes. It's almost like a different sport. So is, is it the same way where the Bulls are in the playoffs and they should lose to this team when they walk in and just sweep them because now it matters and I can find that next second or third gear? I think that's part of it. It's, hockey's different in that you can get that, you know, that hot goaltender because the goaltender does play the whole game, where in basketball you can kind of get that one hot player. But basketball has so many possessions where – it's really – it often is just the best team will win out, especially seven-game series. And this could be the case where Jordan and the Bulls, again, coming off two straight championships, and Jordan was in the – Jordan and Pippen were on the Olympic team. Mm-hmm. They probably coasted a little bit. And the Knicks were this hungrier, like younger and hungrier team, come out, get first place in the East, and then uh, this is where Jordan and them have to uh, show that, yeah, we still have it. But uh, they lose game one, and then game two is the infamous Jordan three for 13 the second half, night or the day after he's been in Atlantic City. Um, so you can just imagine some of the sports writers writing these guys off, saying they're not, you know, taking it seriously. The younger, hungrier teams from the Knicks, but then uh, they go back to Chicago, and Jordan goes off. And two straight wins back to the Knicks. And then they have this close game where you think that they, uh, the Knicks have this shot. What's that guy's name here? He, uh, you just think you, Oh, he didn't, we don't have a name, but uh, I think it was Smith for the, uh, for the Knicks just has that ball. Oh, and he couldn't get trying it out of the to basket. Score yeah. and trying to score. And, and you, I mean, you talked here saying you think there was a foul and it looks like a foul. And then you kind of look at it and you go, well, that was clean, and that Jordan strip is clean, and that Pippen block is clean, and that Horace Grant block is clean. And they they say, like, this is just one of the greatest defensive stands in the history of the NBA playoffs. And that poor guy just – the ball's right there. He just had to score. He had three shots. Cause I'm used to the basketball, Ricky, where if someone goes up for the net three times, they're getting a foul. doesn't matter what yeah. it is. No one cares. They're going to blow the whistle. Then I'm watching this going – how is that not a foul? But to your point, you wrote down, it's not a foul to you. 
Yeah. You're actually watching it going, I don't see anything wrong with this play. That guy won't – I don't think he would have slept in the 25 years oh. since that's happened. Yeah, and, it, and it's, you know, seconds left in a, play, in a playoff game. So the refs are probably a little more liberal with the with how often they're going to blow the whistle. But still, like, it just – but, again, you have – Rodman, or no, so you don't have Rodman, you have Jordan and Pippen there, two legendary defensive players, and just going and meeting that guy right at the top of his jump, stopping the shots from going in, and then, you know, away they go, and then Jordan comes back and wins game six, and those poor Knicks fans, they've been they've been suffering long and hard. They're they're kind of like the, the Maple Leafs fans of the NBA. They just because yeah, Knicks fans are considered a joke. The Knicks are considered mm-hmm. a joke. Everything about the Knicks that I've understood is a joke. When's the last time they won? It was when uh, Phil Jackson was on the team. Wow. So it was in the 70s. Wow. And they, I mean, money's not a problem for them. It's New York City. People should want to play there. The last thing I remember about the New York Knicks that was interesting was Jeremy Lin. Lin Sanity was there. Yes. Yeah, so they've, you know, I saw their uh, their all decade team for the 2010s and it's pretty hilarious it's not anything to be proud of but the 90s the Knicks team was awesome they just happened to have Michael Jordan in the league at the same time right and then maybe even Charles Barkley there was a lot of good teams back then as we learned from the dream team but when it comes to Jordan and competition I love the narrative of this in this story where he's out they're on him about the Jordan rules which we'll get into next and which is, it was this book that came out that kind of exposed the, the, the poor side of Jordan's character, right. the gambling. It just feels like whenever you get down on this guy, whenever he feels slighted in the smallest way, that's all he needs to rise up to the occasion. Like they, they said it in the game. In this Knicks series, in game one, Jordan shot three for 13 in the second half of game one. Three for 13. That is the first time in six episodes that we learned that not every shot Jordan May went in. Yeah, three for thirteen, not thirteen for thirteen, like in the uh, the Lakers series, right? Which is what it, it felt like that up to this time, and so you get this this rising up again of Michael Jordan saying, "No, no, 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 no! If you bet against me, I'm going to make you pay." And once again, Michael Jordan, and that's like, Ricky. The longer I look at this, that is his X factor. His X factor is this compulsion to be competitive, this compulsion for someone to say, I don't think you can do this. And I'm going, cool, I'm going to do this. Just watch me. And he's got the talent and the speed, thing else, the intelligence to make it happen. Absolutely. You have, you have some of these top, top, top tier guys that they forever have the, you know, the, you didn't believe in me uh, mentality. And, and Jordan, I don't know if you've seen Jordan's hall of fame speech, but he calls out, the guys that made it on the basketball team over him. They, he calls out the guys who got uh, drafted before him. He calls out, a, I think it was a coach who, like he's calling, yeah, guys, calling guys out in his Hall of Fame speech. And so you have the most, you know, talented guy in the world who's always just keeps finding, you know, that bulletin board material about why people are doubting him or, or why people aren't believing in him that he has to prove it to these people. And if you ask any of these people, they would still say he's the best player in the world, but he's saying, no, it's not even the best. It's not enough to be the best. I'm going to be 
the best by the largest gap you've ever seen. Right. He, he wants to rewrite history and say, listen, you made a mistake, and I'm going to make sure you pay for it. Oh, man. And I do want to say this about Jordan's gambling thing because this was a theme earlier on in the episode where we've got his gambling, we've got the pressure of Jordan. He goes into a media silence at around the time after he sucked in game one and two. He says, I'm not going to talk yeah. to the media anymore. I'm putting this away. Don't worry about it. He actually has his dad come out and talk to the media at one point, which is kind of wild. But again, it works. And then we'll get into the 93 finals where he comes out of it and talks to Ahmad Rashad. But I want to get into this book that came out around this time, The Jordan Rules. And now, I thought The Jordan Rules were what we referred to in the Pistons series, where you get to treat him differently and beat him up. And no, no, no. The Jordan Rules were all about how Jordan, well, was treated differently, but also treated people differently. How the persona you see in the media, Ricky, wasn't the real story. Yeah, it's really <clears throat> Sam Smith. uh comes in and, and gets kind of these behind-the-scenes quotes from these players that are kind of unclear about who he's getting all his uh, information Well, from. they're pointing the finger to Horace Grant right off the top, and I'm like, wow, that's two or three people saying Horace Grant. And then I forgot yep. that he's in the episode. Yeah. And he denies it all. But I don't know. It seems like there's you – know, he was coming from somewhere, and, and if enough fingers are pointing at you, Horace, it might have been you. That might have been the reason you left and went to uh, Orlando after this season. But, hey, I think we might get into some of that after. Um, but, yeah, so in this book, it, 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 it details some of these kerfuffles, you could say, in practices where Jordan's, you know, fist fighting with teammates and yelling at teammates, um, threatening to uh, – not pass teammates the ball if they ever give it to another guy, you know, in crunch time. Um, and, and, you know, in the book, he's quoted as wanting to get rid of our, our main boy, Jerry Krause. Let's pause there. 1992, because I've had some feedback about this whole series of the last dance. People saying it's not fair to Jerry Krause. This is a Jordan puff piece and they're just making people look bad. Jordan wanted Jerry Krause gone in 1992. He says it right then and there. Like, let's get rid of this guy. I can't stand him. And we have example after example, Ricky, you talk about the coach thing. And even before that, where Jerry Krause is a problem, even though he's good at his job. So imagine 1992, 1993, this guy wants Jerry Krause gone. And then this documentary is all about the 1997-98 series. Like, no wonder blood is boiling over at this point. Well, that's it. Like you, you hear the story where uh, Phil Jackson called into Jerry Krause's office, and he has the book there with Phil Jackson says twenty five or so marked pages, and he's reading out to Jackson all the stuff that's saying in the book. Twenty five different things in a in a I don't know one hundred and fifty page book. Like there's, you can tell he's definitely taking offense to pretty much everything that's in that book and you know if it wasn't sour between him and jordan before that it certainly started and escalated from there i i just jordan would be the same way we've seen that, that about him in this in this series where he talks to people about not being the first star or their quote in the newspaper so i get that he's just as neurotic as jerry Krause is all i'm trying to say here is that jerry Krause was a problem this is not a slant piece by this documentary 
Jerry Krause was a problem, and it's not just Jordan doing that or saying that. He got what he deserved. And my, if I need to put a little ace in the hole on this, it's the if you go eighty-two and zero, Phil Jackson, you're still getting fired. Right. So it's it wasn't at that point. It's a personal decision. It's not looking out for the best interest of the team. Um, but uh, speaking of Jordan feeling slighted, let's get to this finals where he goes, yeah. Charles was the MVP of the league, which I thought I deserved, but I figured I'd take it out on him in the finals. Man. Isn't that so this is this is brand new to me. So I knew the name Charles Barkley played on the Suns. Had no idea he was the MVP. I know I sound so ignorant. They're like, why are you doing this podcast, Greg? Well, because I'm interested in it. I'm allowed to learn new things, okay? All I knew was again, Charles Barkley, NBA Jam, that sort of thing. Had no idea he was the MVP. Had no idea he was in the finals against Jordan. And it's just another example of Jordan saying, cool, I'm going to come back to the back of the plane and play you for your $1 decks because I want to hold it over you. Right. Yeah. And this is the, where uh, Charles has been a great player in the Eastern Conference. He came in a year or two after Jordan, I think. Been this great player with the Philadelphia 76ers. They haven't been a great team. Haven't done well in the playoffs. But you know they would have they would have had to get past Detroit or Chicago or you know Cleveland's been was really good at the time too. So Charles again kind of contract dispute flies across the new upstart uh, Phoenix Suns team and does really well there. Does amazing this '93 season. Finishes they have the best record in the NBA home court throughout. Barkley's your MVP. He's finally getting to make it to the finals. He didn't have to go through Jordan and everybody to get to the finals out of the East. He went to the West and they actually end up uh, winning game one. So do they not? Why? Yeah, I think they do. Yeah. yeah. And, and then it, I think it's getting game two. Charles just quoted is saying, this is the first time in my life that I realized I wasn't the best basketball player in the right. world. And I thought, man, where have you been? Charles Barkley, that you're, that you actually think that you were the best basketball player in the world this whole time? One, he, he must be pretty good to think that. But two, that just felt so off. It was off-putting, but just so blind. Like, you're playing against some really talented players in the NBA. And just now, in game two of the NBA Finals, you realize you're not the best player on the planet? Yeah, game, game two against a team that has won the previous two NBA championships, right? So that's where some of these elite athletes, though, you have to think you're the best. You have whether you really deep, truly deep down believe it. You need to convince yourself to have that confidence to go out and play. I mean, I look at some of these these college players that are the you know the top two players on their team, and they go in, they light up um, their conference championships, but then when they go and play into the NCAA tournament. They lose all their confidence and they're airballing threes and they're shooting over the backboard and they just can't pull it together. Whereas you play, they could have played that team two weeks later and they would have been amazing. Um, so you have these professional athletes, they know how to always have that confidence to go out there and perform. But for Barkley to come out there, Greg, and go, I know, I know I'm not the best player in the world now. It's Michael Jordan. You have guys like Larry Bird and Magic Johnson who knew it in 1984. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Oh, Charles, the best. And around this time, too, there's an interview in the documentary where 
Ahmad Rashog is with Michael Jordan in his Range Rover, which I will point out, one, a very safe vehicle, and two, Sidney Crosby drives the same vehicle. It's like these guys are worried about their physical health, so they drive very, very safe vehicles that are very, very expensive. And I thought it was a funny tie-in that two of the greatest players in their sport to drive the same vehicles. In this interview, on the way to, I assume, the game, it's, it's raining out in Chicago, Michael alludes that he's considering walking away from the game. Before he's even won his three-peat, he says, like, it's getting to him and that he's thought about it. And I thought, oh, my goodness. Like, I, I don't know what's coming next, Ricky. You do, right? Like, the whole basketball thing and the break from the game. Like, that's next episode, I, I assume. Or the baseball thing, sorry. I assume yeah. that's next. But the way that they're telling this story, I look at that decision and him hinting before the finals even happened that he might leave going, oh man, the, the pressure really got to this guy. Like maybe he did want to escape. And I know that that is contrary to the conspiracy about Jordan gambling on basketball we talked about, which the conspiracy theory tinfoil hats on me hopes is true. Uh, I just, that caught me off guard. It caught me off guard because I never knew that someone could be so overwhelmed by the pressure, I guess. Yeah. I mean, you look at some of the other famous kind of early retirements. You look at uh, Barry Sanders is the one that comes to mind. Uh, Gronkowski as well, though that doesn't really count because he's coming back. Megatron. Megatron. But to me, like, those are all NFL players. Those are all football players who are more worried about their physical well-being. Yes. All right. All right. I've made my money. I've had my fun. Time to go live my life. Where Jordan, he's 31. He's in the absolute prime of an NBA career. And it's not that he's worried about his physical health. He's worried about his mental health. He's worried about having to have this 24-7 persona where he has to keep up and has to do everything and has to face all these accusations about how his, his lifestyle. And it's really getting to him. And we're left hanging at the end of the episode whether, you know, what's going to happen. Game three goes into triple overtime. Okay. I believe the Bulls end up losing. They do. And near the end of the game, I think the Suns are up by seven, eight points. I'm seeing empty seats everywhere in this arena. Someone pointed out on social media where, how, why are these seats empty? Why are people leaving the game? And I understand it's triple overtime. It's late. You probably have to work tomorrow. Your team's down. You want to get a head start on traffic. Ricky, there is no way if I'm paying tickets to the NBA final that I'm leaving that game before it's done. See, I think this is where I have to educate you on sports other than the NHL. If you're down one goal in the NHL, the game is not over until that horn sounds. In basketball, you're down nine with under a minute to go. That game is over. Say that to Reggie Miller. Today's the anniversary of Reggie Miller scoring eight points in nine seconds. I said they were, anything can happen. I said they were down nine points, Greg. <laughs> you can give Reggie Miller one more three point. Give him three oh, more man. seconds. He's getting another three in there. Have you seen that? Do you see how bad John Starks, the aforementioned John Starks, screws up there? Reggie Miller again, my favorite player of the nineties, um, and just unbelievable him scoring those eight points in nine seconds. But two, I mean, two of them were free throws. So, I mean, who knows? But I just want it for the experience, Ricky. <laughs> Even if they're not going to come back and win the game, I want the experience. When I went to the, the, 
NHL Finals, uh, Stanley Cup Final. It was Knights versus the Caps. Knights lost game two badly. I'm not leaving that game early. I'm soaking it in. Even if, even if they got blown out, I want the experience. And maybe this is different for people that actually have season tickets to games and are used to this sort of thing. Like this is the third time in a row, I guess, that the the Bulls have been to the final, and so they're getting used to it. And that happens to fan bases. I'm thinking about the Atlanta Braves, actually, who during the Chipper Jones era were so good. This is you know the uh, John Smoltz and. Greg Maddox as well. Don't forget. So... Don't forget Tommy Glavin. Oh yeah, Tom, I thought you Terry, said John. Terry. I thought you said John Rocker. No, <laughs> like, no, no, I'm forgetting John Rocker. Terry Pendleton. Come on. They, like, they. I think they made it like 11 or 12 years in a row, and they weren't selling out until like the third round of the playoffs because people were so used to it. So maybe there's some saturation setting in by the fan base. I don't know, but I, I'm not leaving that. Would you leave early? Uh, I maybe it might like and. They're really only showing You're the lower the, the lower stands where it's uh, the high price the high price you, seats and all yeah, those. Right? I gotcha. So, but again, I think I think they were they, they, the show the clip they show in the in the episode is with you know five seconds to go. It doesn't take long for you to get up out of your seat, and there could have been a timeout and a TV timeout, and they get into the free throws, which is the big complaint with the NBA. Of all my hockey friends, is. Why does the last minute of an NBA game take 25 minutes? Which is why they have that uh, new format that they're ch- they're testing out with, like they did in the All Star game, where all right, at some point we just say all right, the next 10 points wins, and so even if you're down nine nothing, you're actually not out of the game. You can score 10 in a row. You're not watching this clock countdown. So I may- I'd love to see that in overtime. Actually, overtime in the NBA that would be unbelievable. All right, first one to first. Well, I guess all well, the threes now. First one to thirteen points wins. Right. Uh, you get down here that Jordan took forty three shots in Game Three. Yeah, I can't. There's there's one of the famous uh, Jordan shows, and they have it's it's our good friend Charles being interviewed after the game, and he's looking at the stat sheet. He goes, "Damn, Michael Jordan shot the ball forty three times today." <laughs> 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 and uh, he had he didn't have a good game. He was nineteen of forty three. Um, and I think he had 44 points or something like that. So 44 points and 43 shots is not very good. Uh, but he turns around next game. He only took, I think it's 36 shots and he had 55 points. <laughs> so the dreaded, the dreaded double nickel as, uh, as, as Spike Lee would call it. And, and I think the bulls go up three, one in this series. Yes, they do. Because the bulls fans take for granted, they're going to win another championship. And there's a quote from Charles Barkley, take that shit off the windows, <laughs> referring to people like they're already boarding up the street for ready for the parade. They're handing out swag like this city. There's a difference between expecting it and hoping it happens. And I can imagine that the people in Chicago expected it to happen. How, like, how could you not? You have best player in the world. You're up three one. You've been playing better. The only game you've lost is in triple overtime. Um, but uh, Charles has a great game, and they send it back to Phoenix. That must have felt so good for Charles Barkley to walk in there and say, I'm so pissed off. In the same way where Jordan gets pissed off, I'm so angry at this. I'm going to will my team through this game. And then he does, and of course, well, okay, that was your that was your cup, oh, no, your cup final. That was your NBA final right there, yeah. Charles Barkley, because you're not going to hold them off for two more games. But I also love, speaking of 
the mental preparation, the story of Michael Jordan saying, you guys, we're going back to Phoenix, only pack one suit because we're going to, to finish this off in one game and then we'll be home. I love that swagger. I love that confidence. I love that mindset. I also would have loved for them to lose and have to wear the same suit that was all wrinkled back to the game. <laughs> that would have been that would have been hilarious if they had to wear the same suit and it's all wrinkled and whatnot. But uh, yeah, it just shows kind of Jordan asking Phil, "All right, I need to address the team." And that would have been just think of you where your headspace is at right there, where it's all right, we can win our third championship in a row, become immortal in the eyes of basketball fans. We can celebrate at home. We don't have to play anything, any more games, and you lose. And a couple hours later, you're boarding a plane. It's about probably a five-hour flight from Chicago down to Phoenix, and you're just miserable. And then here comes the leader of your team. Hey, pack one suit. We're going to win. We'll be back. We're going to have fun. Don't have to you – know, like we got to take care of business in game six. And I just imagine that would just totally have energized that team. Uh, and then they've, you know, they go back to the airplane and gamble for thousand dollars a hand, but you know, to, to celebrate, <laughs> to yeah. celebrate. And, and you talk about becoming NBA legends with a three P, which they allude to in the show. Where if you're an NBA team that wins three in a row, you're amongst really rare company. Only, at this point, only two teams have done it before. I believe it's the Lakers and Celtics. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I know it's the Celtics. I think it's the late. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's the Lakers and Celtics. But it was like the Minneapolis Lakers. Okay. So nobody's really done it since the NBA became a real league, right? It's like all the Canadians counting all their championships when there was six teams in the league. Yeah, I went. Yeah, we have twenty six. Okay, yeah, but your odds are pretty good when there's six teams. You've got a one to six chance uh, because Pat Riley, who's a, a famous coach in the NBA, actually trademarked three peat after the Lakers won two in a row in nineteen ninety eight. And I love this because the Lakers won two in a row, lost the third. And then we've seen the Detroit Pistons have won two in a row, lost the third. And then, well, actually, earlier on in the, in the uh, series, you see Michael Jordan. We've talked about this, wearing the, the X through the three-piece right. shirt. I didn't know that Pat Riley had trademarked that, and that was actually a big deal that had come out afterwards. But how good would it have felt for Jordan and the Bulls to finally get to, to wear that and say, hey, you know, Pat Riley, we need to use your – trademark because we just did it yeah. bro yeah happy to pay your trademark fee right but yeah so they uh come out there in that game game six down in phoenix and jordan seems like he's playing really well but we get to this last minute and phoenix is actually up four and you could just imagine the talk of the announcers and some of the nba and the chicago fans thinking oh crap like they almost had it in game five. Now we're back in Phoenix. Phoenix wins this. Now we have game seven back in Phoenix. Game seven, anything can happen in a game seven. Because you know that's happening. You know it's right? happening, right? Yeah. And I think they're down four with like 48 seconds left. And you see Jordan steal the ball and just dribble the whole length of the court for an easy layup. And they, uh, I mean, the worst thing that can happen for, for Phoenix at that point. But then... Jordan gets the ball back. Now they're only down two. And you see this nice play, pass, 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 out to John Paxson. Hits this wide open three to wide open, wide open to essentially win the NBA championship. And you hear the announcer go, the first 
bold to score in the fourth quarter besides Michael Jordan. (laughs) This is where, this is where to bring it up again, we've talked about Jordan taking 36 shots, 44 shots, 43 shots, whatever it is. Um, where I, I take a little bit of issue with them talking about the triangle offense being this amazing offense where it gets everybody involved and everyone gets a chance to score. You have one player taking over half your shots. That that could be any offense. That you can't you can't tell me that is any different than Jordan was uh under the previous coach, Doug Collins. Totally. It's so funny. Now is John Paxson, he obviously made the shot. He's wide open. You've got it that it's foreshadows the, the 98 series, which we'll see um, well, um, episode 9 or 10, I'm assuming. Is he known for a three-point shot? Like, is this a surprise that he made the shots? Or No, he, he was their three-point shooter, and he's been, he's been on the team their whole, this whole run. So he's, uh, he was actually coming off the bench in this series, but uh, he was, you know, traditionally starting kind of him and uh, B.J. Armstrong were – kind of interchangeable but uh yeah like he's on there at the end and i don't know if they had him on there specifically uh, you know as the three-point shot threat uh at the end coming out of the timeout or if he had been on kind of the whole end of the game but uh you see the shot from the side and the ball's going up and you just see dan marley almost like it looks like he's almost pulling his hair out just like Oh no! I need to go back and watch this. I, I didn't, yeah. didn't pick this up. Oh, and just he's just like no, and it goes in, and you see him calling for a timeout. But because you just, know that shot was supposed to go to Jordan, and right. they're triple teaming Jordan, saying no, 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 someone other than Jordan has to beat us, and then the Bulls go, cool, checkmate. Yeah, <laughs> we'll we'll give it to someone else because our team is capable of beating you outside of Jordan, and that just must have been so frustrating for the Suns just so frustrating you see their coach just screaming at him greg just screaming at him get the ball out of jordan's head don't let jordan beat him double team him you know everyone knows like he's taking 40 shots a game let's make someone else beat us and jordan makes the pass there's another pass back out to this wide open three-point shooter and he buries it and not only do you lose the two nothing or the two-point lead now you're down one and now you've lost the NBA Finals. Boom. The three-peat happens. And this will set us up for the next episode because the three-peat happens, and they go into this like it wasn't Jordan celebrating. It was relief. Cool. We did it. Finally, I get a break from the madness. And there's a moment in there where, again, this is it, it was a perfect way to end the episode because it reminds us of how they started the episode. He's doing interviews right after he wins his three-peat. And ask, like, do I have anything else to do right now? Like, can I have some moments to myself, please? Yeah. Like, do you want to call your wife? He's yeah. like, yes, that would be a very yeah. nice. On the corded phone, no less, right? Like, that's yeah. how it was back then. And it's just like, yeah, I guess this guy couldn't get away from it. And that that will be wild. I've won some championships in my day. None of them mattered because who cares about, you know, baseball and when you're in Little League. But I got to celebrate and be in the moment, right? We've all been there when we've won stuff where that moment means so much to us. But you don't get that at that level, right? Like you've got owners involved, you've got advertisers involved, all this sort of stuff. And then you've got Jordan who still has to do interviews and have quotes and be live on TV minutes after you won. That would drive me bananas. And I, the whole, 
the relief more than joy. I get that from him because oh, finally, finally, I can put this all behind me. My job is done. And hopefully I can go back to my mansion and be by myself and just think for a little bit. Maybe he was just thinking about when his next tea time was. Yeah, well, <laughs> there's actually a very good chance that's the case, right? Oh, that's how it ends, I guess, right? No. Is that how it ends? No, they, they, they go, uh, they have the golfing montage earlier when they win. Uh, oh, they beat the Knicks. They, they beat the Knicks. So they, they beat the Knicks in five or whatever. So they have a little bit of time. Uh, but yeah, you know, Jackson lets him off early and Jordan's in a mad rush to get out of practice so he can go golfing and he won't let, he won't let Scotty talk to the reporters or anything. He's trying to drive the bus out of there. So to make it, sure he makes his tea time. I loved it because it just talked about the, the awareness of Phil Jackson as a coach to go, you know what? We're not going to do this. We're going to take a break because these guys need it. They just beat the Knicks and they weren't supposed to or whatever. I howled at Dennis Rodman's saying what he was going to do. I'm going to go find like a strip club and just unwind. I'm like, this guy <laughs> is so much himself and such a bizarre character, but he is consistent. You can't knock him for that. It's true. And consistent in his choice of places to go and in his, uh, Choice of attire with some more of the uh, plaid <laughs> flannel pajama, the, the flannel pajama <laughs> pants and flannel pajama shorts. Oh man! On. Well, it was they were in the desert, so he had to have the the shorts on, not the pants. Okay, Ricky, final word to you. Just I I've, I've said it before, but some of the montages they do with the hip hop and everything, and you see some of the moves that Jordan's putting on, and you remember. Some of the spinning and the one where he spins and like flicks, he spins around, he's back, he's back to the basket. He goes and shoot and he like hits his hand with his other hand as he's shooting. It's like, I don't know why he's doing that, but it, he, he was kind of known for doing it. But there's, you know, a move that we would all try and do on the, on the schoolyard or at the basketball practices, but just showing just amazing athleticism by this guy and the body control to be slicing and dicing through all these defenders it's just unbelievable um not a lot of players that play like that anymore and some of the shots that you're seeing jordan take these mid-range kind of mid-post turnaround jump shots they've they've all but gone extinct out of the nba game now it's all everyone around the perimeter shooting three-pointers driving to the basket trying to get to the foul line um which i i, I think is a more enjoyable game as a whole but some of the, you know, Jordan operating in these tight spaces around the basket, going up on the right side, reverse layup to the left side, faking guys in the post and during turnaround fadeaways. It's just like the, it, it's almost like watching a ballet at some times. And that was always a rumor we had as kids is that, well, Michael Jordan did ballet. Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan did ballet to help really? with his jumping and, I mean, who knows if it's real, but it was real to a nine-year-old kid in Regina, Saskatchewan, that's for sure. That's but, amazing. Uh, it's going to be amazing to see. Um, I'm I'm excited for if we get any of this extra baseball footage I haven't seen. Um, and then now we're getting into the 98 playoffs. Um, again, just going to have more and more basketball characters that I vividly remember from watching them. I, for one cannot wait to see what happens i'll be watching 
Twitter on Sunday night watching all the Americans tweet about it and give us all the fun stories. And then we will bring them to you right here on Learning the Last Dance because that's what we do, Ricky. We tell stories and you educate me on basketball and I ask really elementary questions and try and fill you in on uh, fashion faux pas, I guess. So we're kind of in that together. So, See you on Tuesday? See you on Tuesday, Greg. Have a great weekend.